We certainly have been so marvelously blessed by the God of heaven this morning to permit us to assemble and to gather. I might add one additional thought before we get into the lesson this morning, having to do with a reminder to the ladies about the ladies' Bible class this coming Tuesday, day after tomorrow, 6 p.m. here at the building, in which you'll continue your consideration of authority and the marvelous subject and discussion that has gone with that to this point. So again, Tuesday, day after tomorrow, September the 3rd, 6 p.m. here at the building. You've already noticed the title of the lesson, The Gospel Accounts. Today, we're going to make an effort to look at all four books of the Gospel Accounts in the next half hour. Now, I hope as we do that, it is not an unreasonable guide, it's not an unreasonable motivation, because I believe if we do this, we will be strengthened and encouraged this opening slide, this next one, will basically ask you to consider this with me. Would you pause just for a moment and reflect with me on this marvelous book we call the New Testament? Twenty-seven books, that which comprise it. It can be naturally divided like this. The first four books are these biographical accounts of the greatest life ever lived. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the life of Jesus Christ our Lord. But then you'll notice the fifth book, the book of Acts, is the book of New Testament history, and it tells you how to benefit personally from the life you've just studied. How do I become a Christian? How do I be a part of that which is the body of the Lord? Following that, we encounter 21 books, Romans through Jude. These tell us practically and marvelously every day, every second of every day, how to live the Christian life. There's only one thing left. The closing book of the New Testament centers around and highlights then how to end life here and go home to glory, how to die as a Christian. And thus, we've studied the life of Christ, how to become a Christian, how to live the Christian life, and finally, how to die as a Christian. Certainly, it's fair to consider that summary of all those books, but now, why don't we cast a bit more of a spotlight on the first four books of the New Testament? It is true, isn't it, that you and I are encouraged. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 4.19, until Christ be formed in you. If Christ is to then be formed in you and I, if our mind is to be patterned after the mind of Christ, may I ask, how do we know what the mind of Christ is? Without doubt, the premier way we can know that is to look then at what Jesus did, what He said, the manner in which He conducted Himself, and so it takes us right back to the first four books of the New Testament. And therefore, for the next few moments this morning, let's highlight the distinctions between them, the marvelous way to look upon them, and how to use them for our own personal benefit. And so, as we close that slide... In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 is the lesson text that was read just a moment ago. And Mike, of course, as he read it to us, he pointed out that these things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you might have life in His name. There are many other things which Jesus did while He walked upon this planet. There were other things that, in fact, other miracles that He performed. 
But the text says these have been written. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve these, and they are sufficient to generate in you and I the faith, the kind of life and appreciation which they ought to. I suppose one of the first questions that might be asked, there's only one book of New Testament history, the book of Acts. One book of New Testament prophecy, the book of Revelation. Why four gospel accounts? Why didn't God just see fit to give us one gospel account? Why four? May I offer you these considerations? These four gospel accounts set before you and me, four independent accounts of the greatest life ever lived. They corroborate one another. They authenticate each other. They, in fact, marvelously present to us the life and times supplementing each other in a fantastic way. But may I say there's maybe another consideration that sometimes is easier to overlook. It's the one at the bottom of that slide. Each one of these gospel accounts was initially written for the benefit of a certain class or group of people. And therefore, you and I today are blessedly benefited by seeing all of those accounts when those first individuals would have been so moved and motivated by that specific message that was given to them. And we'll highlight that a little bit during the course of our study this morning. Without any further delay, let's turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, 28 chapters. And yet in this book, the first of the gospel accounts, maybe we would do well to reflect a little bit on who Matthew was. He was the one that wrote the book. And yet we learn these facts, these considerations about Matthew. First of all, he otherwise in the New Testament is called Levi. His father's name was Alphaeus, as you'll notice on that slide. But perhaps more to the benefit of our lesson, note this with me. He was an apostle of the Lord. When Jesus selected those twelve that would be His closest associates, those that were the apostles, Matthew was one of them. In Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, we have a listing of them, and Matthew's name is provided to us in that listing. But in addition to that consideration, you'll notice as far as his livelihood, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a publican, as we learn in Matthew chapter 9. That will give him a very unique perspective on certain of the things which he would include in his writing. When you ask about what the name Matthew really means, that word literally means gift of Jehovah. At the bottom of that slide, let's now cast a spotlight on this book that he wrote. Could I invite you to consider this? The book of Matthew, in a very dramatic fashion, presents evidence and proof that Jesus really was the Messiah that that completed and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Time and time again, that perspective is utilized. And would you note this? That would have been extraordinarily meaningful to people who were Jews. The book of Matthew originally was that gospel account directed for the benefit of the Jewish nation because they were the very ones that knew the Old Testament. They had been schooled in it every Sabbath day, and they knew very well what those prophecies in many ways said. And yet Matthew presents proof positive that Jesus fulfilled them, 
that He was the Messiah, that that Jewish nation was looking to come. And therefore, one final statement. One thing the Jews, of course, looked upon with such necessity was the greatness of the concept of a prophet and the greatness of the concept of the lawgiver. Think with me for just a moment about those that were in the history of the Jewish nation. Men like Moses, the greatest lawgiver the Jewish nation had ever known. After all, on Mount Sinai, he had received those great commandments from God and delivered them to the Israelite nation. And yet, the book of Matthew presents Jesus as a great lawgiver as far as prophet. Some of the greatest souls in all the Old Testament were the prophets. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah, people like Ezekiel and Daniel and others. And yet, Matthew illustrates that Jesus followed also in that line, and He too presented the very nature of the law of God as a great prophet. As we develop those thoughts perhaps a little bit more, let me offer you a few more evidences, again drawn from the book of Matthew, that assists us in seeing the reality of what we just said. You'll notice at the top, I stated a moment ago that the book of Matthew rather remarkably illustrates that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament Jewish prophecies. Prophecies about the coming Messiah. Prophecies about the kingdom He would establish. Prophecies about the nature and character of the kind of organization He would have. Look at some of these evidences. Far more than either Mark or Luke or John, Matthew over 100 times quotes or alludes from the Old Testament and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet. Or this is that which, again, by earlier reference is noted. Again, to those that were Jews who knew those prophecies, it would have been very meaningful to hear someone say, this Jesus is a fulfillment of that. Look at the next one, if you would. Have you ever given thought of the interesting way the New Testament, yea, the book of Matthew commences, how it begins? The very first thing the book of Matthew presents is a genealogy. Tracing Jesus' ancestry. Have you ever noticed where it ends? He traces it back to Abraham. To a Jew, that would have been extraordinary. Because again, the Jews consider themselves the children of Abraham. They consider themselves the very embodiment of all that God ever intended relative to ancient Israel. And therefore, to trace the heritage of this man all the way back to Abraham. You'll notice on that slide, in the course of that genealogical development, the inspired writer does pause to emphasize David. Who else did the Jews look up to with such great respect? Was it not David? More than once in the account we call Matthew, references made back and the Jews themselves admitted, we're the sons of David. Matthew points out this Jesus not only came through the line of David, in fact, also came through the line of Abraham. These thoughts would have not been looked upon lightly by those that were Jews. And so as we close that slide, if one gives thought then to the mechanism, the thing that Matthew emphasizes, 
he is certainly, in light of emphasizing Jesus as the Messiah, emphasizes the kingdom which the Messiah would establish, the kingdom of God. Fifty-five times in the book of Matthew, fifty-five times in 28 chapters, attention is called to the word kingdom, the kingdom of God. Remember, the Jews loved the thought of a kingdom. They had enjoyed greatly when David was king, and they enjoyed victory over their enemies. In the days of Jesus, of course, Rome was ruling over them, and they still so longed for the reality of a leader who would cast off the Roman yoke and who would lead them to supremacy. Jesus did speak of a kingdom. Could we pause a moment and notice Matthew 16, verses 16 to 19? Wasn't it in the coast of Caesarea Philippi that there Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? And of course they said, some say John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some Elijah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In reply, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now note with me the next verse. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Might you and I notice the kingdom and the church are one and the same. Jesus referred to them in exactly the same sentence. In as, in as much then as the book of Matthew highlights this kingdom, what a beautiful reference there is to the church. Nextly, might we note this. The law of the kingdom is highlighted in that blessed sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. Seven times in that we read, You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. In other words, the law of my kingdom will be superior to this Old Testament law, the law of the kingdom. The key verse in the book is the last paragraph. All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That snapshot of the book of Matthew perhaps invites our attention to the book of Mark. The second of the gospel accounts, having noticed then the author of the book of Matthew and some of the details of that wonderful book, let's notice in distinction how is Mark different. First of all, some information about the author. Mark, really the Bible refers to him as John Mark, and you notice almost instantly that we know something about his mother. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we're told she was a woman named Mary, and she was wealthy enough to own a house in Jerusalem. Not only that, notice the fine other kinfolk of this man named Mark. He had a cousin named Barnabas, who was a companion of Paul on the first missionary journey. Isn't that interesting? Colossians 4, verse 10. In addition to that, note this with me. This man named Mark really was a companion of Peter. We learned that in 1 Peter 5. But furthermore, he was an associate of Paul on the first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13. The lovely description we have of all of that 
brings us to note this. If the book of Matthew was written for the initial benefit of the Jew, who was the original beneficiary of the book of Mark? Mark was written for the benefit of the Romans. Remember with me that in the life and times of that first century, there were Jews and there were Greeks and there were Romans, and the book of Mark was especially suited to reach and to touch the lives of those that were Roman. At the bottom, let's quickly note some of these ideas. Rome was the ruling power of the world in the first century. A few hundred years earlier, they had conquered, you see, the Grecian Empire, and now Rome was the ruling power. Rome was the imperial city. It was the largest empire the world had ever known to that point. And so the Roman people viewed themselves as conquerors. They viewed themselves as rulers. They viewed themselves as preeminent and powerful. That's exactly the way the book of Mark presents Jesus. One last thing on that slide. A Roman person, given that mentality, they liked things brief and to the point. You didn't beat around the bush with a Roman. They wanted you to say what you needed to say and get on with it. The book of Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts, only 16 chapters. Again, ideally suited to garner the message and the attention of those that were of Roman extraction. On the next slide, as we develop that, I've already mentioned the brevity of the book of Mark, but notice also as you read through it, some of the aspects and features. The book of Mark is very vigorous. It is action-packed. It moves from one scene to the next almost instantly. And as it does that, it highlights action. That's what would have bent so much to a Roman. For that reason, look at some of those elements. Mark's gospel is the gospel of power. I say that for the following reasons. Remember, Roman people considered themselves people of power, and they wanted to be appreciated in that light. That's exactly the way Jesus is described. Consider this with me. The key word in the book of Mark, oddly enough, is the word immediately. The King James will often read it straightway. That word is used 42 times in 16 chapters. And what it highlights is, is that things with Jesus happened instantly. When He stilled a storm, it didn't take an hour to do it. It was instantly. When He healed a particular person who was ill, the healing happened immediately. That's what the book of Mark highlights. And to a Roman, that would have been so meaningful. They were used to giving orders and having people obey it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The gospel of power then illustrates Jesus had power over nature. He had power over illnesses. He had power over demons. The Lord was a man of power. For that reason, notice what's at the bottom. The key verse, Mark seven thirty-seven, Speaking of Christ, He hath done all things well. You and I might have known many people who can do a lot of things well. But we've never known anybody that literally can do all things well. And yet Jesus not only could, but He did. And so we have the book of Matthew for the benefit of the Jew, and the book of Mark for the benefit of the Roman initially. What about Luke? 
the third of the gospel accounts. As before, why don't we take just a moment, maybe reflect on the authorship of Luke, but then make a few comments about this blessed book we call the gospel account according to Luke. First of all, Luke was a companion of Paul. From Acts 16 to 21, we notice he time and again refers to himself as being with Paul on the second and third missionary journeys. So he saw firsthand the establishment of lots of congregations. He saw firsthand the working of the Holy Spirit through Paul. Perhaps it is in that regard. We might note that Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. By the way, that almost easily leads us to this conclusion. He was a Gentile. The only doctors of that day and time were Greek. It appears that at least in terms of background, Luke was a Greek. And yet he had been converted to Christ and he thus was a powerful, powerful missionary for the truth of our God. One last thing. Luke tells us something beginning his book. He said, I have researched carefully and diligently. And now he tells us who he's writing to. A gentleman named Theophilus. By the way, that's the same person to whom the book of Acts is written. And you and I today have been blessed throughout these centuries by the preservation of these two dramatic and wonderful books. At the bottom of the slide. So who was the book of Luke written for initially? Not the Roman. It does not emphasize power the same way the book of Mark does, and it isn't nearly as brief. This one's for the Greek. The book of Luke is a masterpiece, presenting Jesus in a way to touch those that were of Greek background, those who were of Greek mentality. We'll highlight that over the next few moments and say this. I mentioned a moment ago that Luke was a physician. And have you ever noticed the book of Luke, even more so than the other gospel accounts, highlights the healing ministry of Jesus? How that He healed individuals, men and women, various and sundry ailments, even raising people from the dead. Luke emphasizes that maybe in part because he has a physician background. But what's more, the Greek people of the first century due to their character and their history, they viewed their civilization as the most ideal and best civilization that there had ever been. That's the way they looked upon Greek society. With Alexander the Great, with Philip of Macedon, and other famous kings in their history, they in fact had a desire to spread Greek culture all around the world because they thought their culture was the best. They considered their way ideal. Have you ever noticed that that's exactly the way the book of Luke presents Jesus? As the ideal individual, the ideal one, the perfect one. As you and I give thought to that, this book emphasizes the universal character of the gospel, the universal nature of that which was behind Jesus. And remember, they wanted to spread Greek culture everywhere, and the Lord's gospel is for everywhere. as we put a little bit more material into that, let's note the way this perfection, this ideal character is emphasized. May I suggest we would do well to start it like this. The first few chapters of Luke, we have more details about the birth of Christ, 
And you and I learn so dramatically with great detail about the virgin birth of Jesus. Notice Jesus wasn't born of a man like everybody else. He had a supernatural birth. And in that supernatural character, it leads us directly to the genealogy. Ponder this with me. Earlier when we studied Matthew, we noticed he traced the genealogy of our Lord back to Abraham. What does Luke do? In chapter 3, as we read over that genealogy, we notice it steps through the generations backward through 76 generations. But it doesn't stop at David. It doesn't stop even at Abraham. It doesn't stop at Noah. It goes all the way back to Adam and then makes this statement, Adam was the son of God. In other words, the genealogy of Jesus is traced to the very beginning of time to the first human being walking on this planet. That to a Greek would have been fascinating. Again, they viewed themselves in the consideration of the ideal character and to trace the genealogy of this man to the very beginning. They would have seen that as an element in completeness, an element in perfection, an element in entirety. But note the next point. The book of Luke has a very interesting and unique and rather lengthy section in it. In other words, material there we don't find in the other gospel accounts. In chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to chapter 10, verse number 4, chapter 18, verse 14. And some of the most well-known matters in the gospel accounts are in that section. I just need to list a few of them. The parable of the prodigal son, it's in Luke 15. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. The statement about the man who went and pulled down his barns because he didn't want to give anything to anybody else is in Luke 12. All of that, for instance, and so many others are in that unique section and maybe one more. That teaching about a rich man in Lazarus who died and perceived matters in the Hadean realm beyond this one, that's in Luke 16. This long, unique section contained in the book of Luke is truly a fascinating consideration. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit to, de to develop that for us. The key verse, chapter 2, verse 52, the last verse in that chapter. When you and I reflect upon that, notice the description is of Jesus, and this is what it says. Speaking of the Christ, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What's that? The Greeks considered themselves the ideal specimen of culture and that which was complete on every hand. And yet the text says the Lord matured in a fourfold way. He increased in wisdom. He increased in stature. He grew physically. But it says He also increased in the capability of interaction with others and with God. The Greeks had left out one. The Greeks would have highlighted physical growth and they would have highlighted mental learning and growth and they would have highlighted encouragement of developing the ability to work with others. But Jesus added one more. He grew in relationship to God. And if one doesn't grow in that regard, then you're missing everything. And so Luke highlights that in a dramatic way. And as we close that slide... Notice the universal character of the gospel. Luke presents Jesus especially suited as the Savior for everybody. 
Not just Greeks, not just Romans, not just men, not just women, everybody. May I call to your attention Luke 24, verses 13 and following in the last chapter. There on that road to Emmaus, we find these individuals describing this one named Jesus and their description of the lovely way in which His message had reached and touched them. In closing that slide, Jesus is a fulfillment then of everything the prophets before Him had said. Luke 24, We've looked then at Matthew, the gospel for the Jew, and Mark, the gospel for the Roman, and Luke, the gospel for the Greek. We clearly have one left to go, but let's pause for an, at least a little interjection. As you study those gospel accounts, it's not that unusual to find a word, namely synoptic, that's used to describe them. And that word synoptic is just a fancy word that means basically similar. There are at least some things similar about all three of those gospel accounts. But the book of John is not included in that list. The book of John is different. I wonder what's different about it and what's the emphasis and who was it written for? Well, without further delay, let's turn our attention to John. As before, a few particulars about John himself. He was the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of James. He too was an apostle. And you'll notice on that slide, there's a way in which he refers to himself in this book. Rather than calling himself by name, and maybe you and I would be a bit hesitant to simply refer to ourselves time and again, he says the apostle that Jesus loved as a reference to himself. As you and I close that point, might we appreciate that this man named John wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel according to John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the Revelation. And so what a great contribution that ancient man has left to all of us. As far as some details about the book of John, it wasn't just written for the Jew or the Greek or the Roman. From the very outset, it was written for the benefit of all mankind. And we'll highlight that in just a moment. It emphasizes and stresses the Lord's personal interest in everybody. Jesus cares about every one of us. He wants you and I to be faithful, and He wants us to live for Him. He loves us that much. To develop it, consider these things with me. I mentioned some of the unique aspects of John, but here's a listing of some of those things in more detail. Have you ever noticed as you read through the book of John, there's not a single parable in that book? Not one. You might pause to think about that a moment. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke list a lot of the Lord's parables, but John doesn't. Now, there are some miracles in the book, but not a single parable. Rather, what we find in the book of John are these rather lengthy conversations, these discourses in which the Lord is involved in discussion with somebody. As, for example, in chapter 3, the Lord's lengthy conversation with Nicodemus, the one who came to Him by night. In chapter 4, His lengthy discussion with a woman at a well in Samaria. In chapter 5, lengthy discussions with those that were Jews. In chapters 9 and 10, a lengthy discussion with a man born blind. 
Aren't you intrigued by this? The Lord's personal interest in individuals. Furthermore, might we note this? As you list some of those things that I just noted, doesn't it highlight how that the gospel is for all? Everybody needs the gospel. Consider these particulars. Nicodemus was a ruling official in the Jewish religion. He needed the gospel, John chapter 3. In the next chapter, that Samaritan woman, she needed the gospel. In chapter 9, that disadvantaged man, the man born blind, he needed it. One by one, we have no difficulty seeing that whether one is rich or poor, educated or not, man or woman, everybody needs the gospel. In chapter 8, there was even a woman taken in adultery and brought right before Jesus and said, what should we do with her? Jesus took the time to not only clarify matters of the law in regard to her, but in fact instilled within her, don't, rather He said, go and sin no more. John 8, verse 11. Surely, as we continue on that slide, the book of John emphasizes the eternal character of Jesus. He doesn't just trace His genealogy back to David, or back to Abraham, or even back to Adam. The book of John begins like this, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God." And as you and I think about that Word, that Word is Jesus, and He's eternal. Certainly, you and I should bow before Him, serve Him completely. And as we close that slide, the key verse is this, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This little sketch of the gospel accounts perhaps allows us to bring our sermon, our lesson today, to a virtual close. Because one last thing is worthy of note. Although these four gospel accounts have their uniquenesses, every one of them end in basically the same way. This perfect life that we've studied, this Messiah that we've cast a spotlight upon, this great individual who is the universal bringer of the gospel, wicked men put him to death. He didn't deserve it. He had never committed any crimes of any kind. He had only tried to help and to teach the truth of God, and yet wicked people killed Him. And so on that slide, you notice though that that death is not the end, because on that first day of the week He arose. And so the same one of whom we've now studied, we can proceed through the New Testament and learn about His church, and to be certain to be a member of it, and live for Him faithfully. In closing that slide then, what a blessing the four gospel accounts are. I might suggest as we close the slide then and close our lesson, we have studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have seen some interesting, unique features of each one, but certainly the point of application to you and me is this. The God of heaven has seen fit to preserve for us these four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And as they authenticate that He really was who He said He was, they challenge us today. Am I living for Him? Are you living for Him? If He did all of that for us, we need to be faithful to Him. As we mentioned at the outset of the lesson, these things are written that you might believe. 
and that believing you might have life in His name. If you don't have spiritual life today, it's not the fault of God. He has given us the gospel accounts. If I don't have spiritual life, it's my fault. I've chosen to walk aside from His truth, and I've chosen to be unfaithful to it. If that's descriptive of you today, why don't you make it right? The Lord is begging you, pleading with you. He's imploring you to come to Him. If you've never become a Christian, believe in Jesus with all of your heart. And these gospel accounts provide you the evidence for that. Repent of your sins, confess the name of Jesus, and be baptized. If we could be of assistance in that regard today, it'd be our joy. If you, however, have become a Christian at some point, and for a while maybe you were faithful, but as of today you are not, and you know it. You have chosen to walk a pathway that is blazoned by the pavement of the devil. That's your choice, but you don't need to stay there. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you want the rest that only He can offer, come down this aisle today. We'd be honored and delighted to pray to God on your behalf, and as you repent and confess the errors of your life known publicly, He has promised to forgive you. If we could be of help in any of these ways today, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?